Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. So uh, I think in the next couple of talks, we're going to talk about some of the treatment advances for primary treatment of uveal melanoma. Um, as we talked about earlier, plaque brachytherapy has kind of replaced a nucleation as our um, you know, primary treatment for most patients. But as we move towards treating smaller and smaller tumors, I think that we may be um, uh, shifting uh, away from plaque brachytherapy towards some uh, uh, less destructive uh, treatment modalities as our primary treatment. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience using vitrectomy with endolaser photoablation uh, for uh, small melanocytic tumors. Um, so maybe we're going forward, maybe we aren't. All right, so all three of us are vitreoretinal surgeons who also practice ocular oncology. And I think, you know, conventionally ocular oncologists were in their own, um, you know, uh, uh, field, but I think more and more vitreoretinal surgeons uh, are comfortable managing intraocular tumors, and a lot of you may have been treated by uh, people who function both as ocular oncologists and vitreoretinal surgeons. So um, the surgical techniques that a vitreoretinal surgeon brings to the table may be very different than the surgical techniques that someone who's trained exclusively in ocular oncology. So. Pars plane of vitrectomy is kind of our standard surgical technique for addressing most uh, issues in the back of the eye, such as retinal detachments, macular holes, macular puckers, removal of blood from the eye. Um, so it's a, a technique that we're all very comfortable performing, um, and it's a safe way of accessing uh, structures on the inside of the eye. So we know that diagnostic vitrectomy is part of our uh, armamentarium already is uh, uh, oncologist. It's a standard uh, surgical technique for biopsying vitreous uh, lymphoma and other metastatic cancers to the vitreous. Um, and it's often uh, our preferred technique for biopsying choroidal melanomas, uh, specifically among those of us who are trained as VR surgeons, vitreoretinal surgeons. So we know that therapeutic, or sorry, that, that uh, diagnostic uh, vitrectomy can be used in the context of making a diagnosis, but how can it help us therapeutically? So in vitreoretinal lymphoma, which is another extremely rare cancer that we treat, um, I think it plays a very important role. You're basically removing the lymphoma cells from the eye, and that in and of itself is therapeutic for a lot of patients in conjunction with other therapies such as intravitreal chemotherapy and radiation. So is there a role for therapeutic vitrectomy in choroidal melanoma? So um, before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about what I mean by endolaser photocoagulation. So um, this is an illustration of a, a curved illuminated endolaser probe, which is being inserted through that little port on the outside of the eye into the eye. And 
uh, you can see that the surgeon is depressing the outside of the eye here and applying laser to the retina. And this is done uh, in retinal detachment surgeries, uh, in diabetic vitrectomy surgeries, in order to create an intentional burn of the retina. And the way that works is that the laser energy gets absorbed by melanin, which is the pigment in the liner underneath the retina. And then the laser energy is dissipated as heat to the retina and the um, choroid, which are sort of the tissues immediately adjacent to the retinal pigment epithelium. And this causes a burn in the retina and ultimately tissue death um, that leads to a scar that seals the retinal hole in, in the case of a retinal tear or detachment. So uh, that's kind of how conventional endolaser photocoagulation works. Basically, heat stress leads to necrosis of the tissue and cell death. Um, so how about photoablation for choroidal melanoma? So basically, same concept. Uh, the melanoma contains melanin, which is the same pigment that's in the retinal pigment epithelium. So it makes sense that the melanoma would absorb the laser energy, dissipate that energy as heat, and the heat stress would then lead to death of tumor cells um, uh, as a result of the application of laser to the tumor. Uh, the potential advantage of treating with laser is that it's a more targeted therapy than radiation. There's really a very small field of damage. It's very targeted. Um, so there's less damage to the surrounding retina. So potentially we could be a little bit more targeted in our therapy with laser than we can be with radiation, which has this wider field of uh, collateral damage around uh, the, the treatment area. So Tim Murray, who uh, is an ocular oncologist and vitreoretinal surgeon, and actually probably one of the most um, preeminent vitreoretinal surgeons who practices ocular oncology. He was recently the president of the American Society of Retina Specialists. So he gave a very interesting talk at this year's uh, meeting of the American Society of Retina Specialists in the Ocular Oncology Symposium. And he was basically arguing that small class two uh, melanomas can be effectively treated with this um, type of therapy, directly ablating uh, the tumor with laser without the use of radiation. Uh, this is, of course, a single center experience. Um, and I think that um, uh, you know the, the fact that someone who's so prominent in the field is willing to kind of put this out there as a potential treatment option is a sign that we should really be thinking seriously about who this may make sense for. So what are some of the potential limitations? So the wavelength of the laser that we use in uh, endolaser vitrectomy is uh, shorter than the wavelength of the TTT laser. So the TTT laser is 810 nanometers, whereas the uh, uh, endolaser is 532 nanometers. And the reason that makes a difference is that the wavelength of the light actually affects how deeply the tissue penetrates, or sorry, the, the laser energy penetrates into the tissue. So that's why you may have heard us talking earlier about TTT as a good treatment option for thin tumors, maybe tumors less than two millimeters. It's possible that you know the limitation on size may be even greater for this um, endolaser, unless we can figure out how to hook up an 810 nanometer uh, wavelength source to our endolaser probe, which to my knowledge is not currently available. Actually, there's a guy doing it, uh, Scott Oliver at the University of Colorado. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a great idea to, to try and incorporate that 810 nanometer wavelength. Um, I, I lost my slides there. So anyway, my current perspective is that um, 
This is an effective therapy um, for small extrafoveal melanomas. So if, uh, if the melanoma is in the fovea and you laser the fovea, you're going to have instantaneous vision loss. So we obviously don't want to do that. Um, uh, and I personally reserve it for uh, tumors with a uh, genetically low risk of metastasis. So the class one prime negative tumors, I'm comfortable treating with this. I'm, I'm not yet comfortable treating a small class two tumor with this uh, modality unless we have, you know, really well-designed um, prospective data to support it. So I think in the future, um, this should be evaluated further. A lot of us are using this in, in select patients, and maybe a multi-center meta-analysis would allow us to establish a better consensus in the field about when this is an appropriate treatment. Um, and I think once we've done that, the next step would be to have a randomized prospective clinical trial to really determine the efficacy of preventing metastasis, particularly in higher risk tumors, and establish you know, the safety profile of this treatment. So that's it. I think it's a great idea. I, I think there's a role for it. Thanks for presenting. I completely agree, Scott. I think um, I think this is a great way to start, uh, especially if you're vitreoretinal trained and um, and if you have a small tumor, then uh, knowing that you can have focused therapy, um, but also choosing your patients wisely, um, I think is you know a really good way to start. You always have radiation, you know, to back yourself up if you need it. Um, I thought it was important to note the difference because I had no idea there was a difference between TTE and endolaser. And so just specifying that difference so that, so that it's not just, uh, you know, maybe from the previous discussion that we had about like, well, no, we don't want to just do laser. It's like, no, there's a specific type of laser and one laser might be better than the other <laughs> or really is better than the other and the other one should be used simultaneously or, you know, kind of in conjunction. When you're in the operating room, you have the you know, you have the chance to get right up on top of the tumor too, and you, you can you can be a lot more. I, I think you can you have the opportunity to be a lot more aggressive, to be you know to, to to laser the tumor and do it in a much more focused way. And doing it in the office can be extraordinarily painful. And I, there are patients in here who uh, who are my patients who will um, concur with with that statement that you know if you really want to laser a tumor hot, it can be really. It can hurt a lot. Yeah, no, that and it's makes tough sense. to numb up the eye um, in the office. So. Well, that's an important distinction too. TTE can be done in the office. Endolaser can only be done in the operating room. Right. Um, backpacking, backpacking, piggybacking <laughs> on on that subject is uh, something I've been doing recently, and that's um, uh, endoresecting uh, the tumor. We talked a little bit about this in certain cases where we talked about. Uh, recurrence of the tumor. What I've been doing is um, using, well, I don't really have a pointer, do I? Oh, yeah, I do. Using the um, vitrectomy setup, I will uh, enter the eye, then mark the tumor um, with uh, what's called an endodiathermy. This is a um, basically strong heat at the edge of the at the edge of a probe that I can put inside the inside the eye, surrounding that tumor, and then 
um, taking the uh, endoprobe, making a little incision in the, in the top of the tumor, um, using my cutter that I would take vitreous out, take that, and then just start cutting the tumor down um, to, to the wall of the eye. What we do then is we, uh, there may be like little pieces of uh, tumor that are sort of stuck to the wall of the eye left behind. I have a forcep that I can use to remove those. And uh, this can be done as sort of a complete um, primary treatment for the, for the primary tumor. Because we you know, have to go through the retina down to the back of the eye, we've created a retinal tear that has to be fixed. Uh, either with uh, a gas bubble and laser that we put in, or sometimes we put in silicone oil. Uh, these are some of the uh, examples that of patients that I've done it on. I've learned that um, they're, they're good patients for this technique, and they're not so great patients for this technique. The good patients are relatively small tumors that, right, that aren't right in the center of the vision, right? And it helps to, for me to be able to approach it uh, with my right hand. So it's a lot easier for me to approach the tumor um, if it's if I'm using my right hand on the temporal side of the eye, if it's in the left eye, because I'm coming from here, my right hand, I'm right-handed, I go that way across the eye, then I can approach that area much easier. Or if it's patient's right eye and I'm right-handed, that it's their toward the part towards their nose. All that um, makes the surgery a whole lot easier. And there are certain patients that it works great for. One is uh, small peripheral tumors. The other is patients who have previously been radiated. I use it uh, in two cases here um, where we've um, used it as a uh, treatment for recurrence. It's also great when done um, if the patients have vitreous hemorrhage, a bunch of opacities inside the eye. And then I've learned um, who not to do it on, right? Um, patients with a lot of subretinal hemorrhage, hemorrhage underneath the retina. Um, and those patients have, have ended up with some really severe uh, recurrent retinal detachments. Uh, that was a learning process. But this is, um, this is I, I think, for me, the next step uh, in how to treat small tumors and also uh, in areas of recurrence that I may not want to re-irradiate. Re Hello. Uh, very interesting. Um, I noticed you had the, the GEP uh, type on all of these. So did you do the biopsy at the time of the endoresection? I did biopsy at the time of endoresection, yeah. If I was using it as a primary therapy, yeah. And so I would, I would remove the tumor, endoresect the tumor, do GEP. At the same time, I would, you know, also send cytology since I had tissue I could send. And then if the tumor was highly aggressive, I would go on and, and radiate it. I've done endoresections, but only on uh, previously plaque patients, uh, tumors that were recurrently hemorrhaging, for example. The, the tumor tissue I found was really quite rotten, and uh, removing it was the best solution. Interesting. What do you think, Scott? have any personal experience with this technique. Um, I can definitely appreciate the PVR risk, um, making a large chorioretinectomy um, scar, which, you know, could potentially, you know, lead to issues. But I, I think it, it may play a role, um, you know, in, in uh, local control for the right patient.
think we can move on now to. You know, the I think the there's a European Spanish doctor that does this very frequently. Um, his videos are crazy. He goes in there and just they they do it a lot in Europe. They do it a lot in Europe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Why don't we take some questions now? Um, a couple of the questions that we had that came in that were more relevant to what we've just talked about. Um, the can you just I guess maybe dumb endo resection down into layman layman's terms, like. Because I, I think I can say what I think I'm hearing, but I just want to make sure that that's what you guys are saying. So can you maybe dumb it down to layman's terms for us? Like, what is it? Sure. So basically going inside the eye, removing the retina over the tumor, and then cutting the tumor out with a, a very fancy sucker. So like this is, this is like we're talking about, this is a new advancement in this treatment for cancer as, as an option for using... It's um, a it's a new theme on an old uh, treatment. So there, okay. um, there, there were it was in favor for a while. Uh, then, as um, plaques got a little bit better, uh, people um, got away from using this technique. Um, myself and others, especially not in this country, but uh, myself and others are using it uh, more and more for a certain select group of patients. Okay. Um, so the study mentioned that I think can't remember if it was I can't honestly remember which of you mentioned it But the study that was mentioned from ISOO about the um, predicted outcomes of the smaller class 2 patients that if it was treated earlier It was found to like have a better outcome Was that all types of treatment were, were studied or was it only specific like where was it brachytherapy proton beam and the endolaser or was it only endolaser? And if you don't don't remember you can point us to the resource for where we can learn uh, I can't say I know what you're referring to. Um, Tim Murray's study, uh, which was presented as ASRS, okay. um, uh, included a variety of treatment modalities. His basic conclusion was that early definitive treatment of a class two tumor is 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 you know potentially curative, and I think that we've seen that in the retrospective uh, data as well. So. Uh, Bill Harbour and I did a study a few years ago where we looked at two large cohorts of uh, patients with class two melanoma um, and tried to find a size cutoff at which, um, uh, you know, treating the tumor uh, was likely to be curative. Uh, and basically in both cohorts, we validated a 12 millimeter size uh, threshold. So basically, you know, if we can effectively eradicate the tumor before the basal diameter reaches 12 millimeters, even if the genetics of the tumor are quite aggressive, we have a much higher likelihood of preventing metastasis. And that holds up, you know, for from when even before there was genetic testing available, right? Um, you know, one of the studies that I like to cite is a millimeter by millimeter in, uh, thickness analysis that was done by Carol in 8,000 patients. What she found was that essentially for every millimeter increase in thickness of a melanoma at the time of treatment, your risk of metastasis goes up by 5%. So a one millimeter tumor by itself without any other information has about a 5% risk of metastasis in the future. 
a 10 millimeter tumor without any other information has about a 50% chance of this. So, of information um, some of us may like and some of us may not want to do that math. <laughs> right, right. I, would, I think the, the but point the is the But the doctors could do that math and you guys understand yeah. that, so that's the important thing. Well, I think this is really the issue. I mean, um, uh, a few years ago I was at a meeting and um, one of the doctors, a famous doctor from New York, uh, said, do you think we are affecting anything by treating the eye? And uh, I think this is, uh, this is where we are. There's some hope that if we get them early, we can, we can help. But sadly, too often, the, uh, you know, the way we properly interpret the genetics is that uh, uh, by the time we've treated the eye, the cells in the high-risk patients have already spread, and we just can't find them uh, with the PET CT. We may not know for years. But for example, class two or a VAP1 mutation, we think that the cells, by the time we meet you, the very first time, those little cells are already out there. And uh, even if you get a PET-CT scan and you're clean, they're probably out there. And that's what that means, being a high-risk patient. Mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't mean that the local control failed. We can enucleate you. That was the COMS study. You can actually just remove the eye and the tumor but the, the risk of metastatic disease is still there due to the, the intrinsic, what's the intrinsic property of the cells. The tumor, a class two tumor is different than a class one tumor. Yeah. We had a couple uh, questions from the back. Can we make sure we get a mic on them? Right. Hold on, hold on. Okay, so her question is, why are a lot of surgeons saying, well, let's just wait and watch and see what happens for this small nevus that we think might be melanoma, but maybe it isn't. I think Dr. Walter and Dr. Hoagland, you all have an opinion, I can tell. <laughs> I mean, I don't, my feeling is that, I'm trying to phrase this in, in, the, in the best possible way. The, my feeling is that it's not too, it's not too likely that by the time you come see one of us that there's really a question about what's going on, all right? By the time you've gotten to one of us, someone has had an inkling that what you have is a melanoma, right? And in that case, you're probably gonna leave that visit with a plan about treatment, right? 95% of the time, when somebody comes to see me and there's a question that maybe it's a melanoma, they were right, and we're gonna treat it. And so I don't love um, uh, prolonging that process and waiting for it to grow a little more so that I can be more convinced. That being said, right, there are lesions that you don't want to treat, right? And that you, and that they may be really vision threatening, right? And you don't, and you know that the results of what you're about to do to somebody, right, well, have very like significant consequences, harm. right? Have very significant consequences. And so you do want to be sure. Um, but I think those moments, at least in my experience, are becoming less and less common. Yeah. 
So, and I mean, could there be some, some argument here that if that is happening or you know a patient that's happening to, that that person should seek a different opinion at that point if they are feeling like they're being watched and waited and they don't like that? If I could jump in. Um, I think there's a historical context here too. Uh, back in the days when enucleation was the only option in the 70s, uh, the standard of care was watch that smaller lesion, if you will, Make sure you know it's a melanoma before you remove the eye. Mm -hmm. And um, I find that still, I, I guess I, I feel a little bit differently, Dave. I, I seem to be, the, 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 the obvious melanomas are obvious. The ones I struggle with are the ones that are, you know, gee, did this thing grow? It, it wasn't seen before. It's got orange pigment, a little fluid, but it's less than a millimeter thick, and it's six, seven millimeters in diameter. And... And then, should I watch this or treat it? And you almost feel like if you watch, and then three months later you say, ah, it's growing, you feel like, gosh dang it, I should have treated it three months ago. So uh, should we err on the, uh, on the side of over-treating these things and jumping and getting on board? Or should we be watching these things? So that's... Does, I have a question. I mean, does Dr. Walter have anything to, that he would weigh in on that as, as far as the early biopsies can go? I know we've kind of talked a little about that before. Yeah, so, I mean, most patients fall into one of two categories. Either it's, you know, pretty obviously a nevus that we can watch, or it's pretty obviously a melanoma, which we need to treat. But there are a substantial number of patients that fall into sort of the gray zone in between where it's sort of a clinically suspicious but small tumor um, that has some risk factors or features that are, you know, suggestive of melanoma. But I can't really tell from looking at it whether it's a melanoma or not. And that's where I think that um, an early biopsy um, can help guide the next steps in management of that patient. So um, these, these sort of suspicious, clinically indeterminate smaller tumors, I will often biopsy and treat with the endolaser photoablation if it's in an area where we can um, you know, spare the vision. So at least we've done something to pre treat the primary tumor. And if it comes back class two or BAP1 mutation positive, I'm gonna convince that patient that they need plaque brachytherapy on top of my treatment. But if it comes back class 1A, frame negative, I'm more comfortable observing um, uh, a lesion either you know, with the laser therapy or in some cases without any therapy um, if we know that therapy would be visually damaging to the patient. And I think, I, I think we're in complete agreement there is that we have a lot more things in our armamentarium now than we used to. Right, and the fact that we can biopsy and biopsy safely before moving on um, with, with brachytherapy or, um, or with proton beam or whatever is, you know, it, it, it's a really um, significant uh, arrow in our quiver. I, I must admit, if I, not to prolong too much, but I have seen a few lesions, most typically ones that surround the optic nerve completely where the, it's, you're gonna be blinded no matter what if we treat you. And I've had patients dig in their heels and say, I wanna wait. And I've got a few of them I've been watching now for eight years or more and it never did change. Oh, and if, and, if I would say if the, if, the patient, if the patient has a strong opinion about it, that's, that's an entirely different situation. And so your question, your question about should, should, they, should the patient seek an alternate opinion, the answer to that is 
not necessarily because there's there's nothing stronger than a really good committed relationship between a doctor and a patient so the that 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 is at the top of really the treatment food chain if, if like you can really create a trusting relationship between your doc you know between your patient and your doctor so um, anything that we say up here if you feel really strongly about how you're doing with your particular doctor always comes in second place you know but this is actually a really good segue to our next uh, discussion which is um, on the topic of uh, what we used to call AU011, um, and it's a uh, treatment for, uh, a novel treatment for primary tumors um, that are smaller and determinate or growing. And this is a uh, treatment that's um, brought to us by one of our sponsors, um, a company called Aura. Um, I, I should disclose that I'm uh, I've been asked by Aura to deliver this uh, presentation. I've contracted with them to do so. I'm an investigator in the Aura clinical trial, and we're going to talk about some of the data that's come out of that for small and indeterminate lesions. So what this is, you need to think about ways that stuff gets into your body, okay? Ways that stuff gets into your cells. And one of the ways that stuff gets into your cells that we've talked about a lot in the last three years is through a virus, okay? And so what I want you to think a little bit about this treatment is we've attached a molecule to something that acts like a virus, all right? That virus then gets into your body. It's a safe virus. It's like a, a safe-ish virus. And, and, then, um, and then attaches to cells that it targets specifically, okay? So this is like a little bit of a complicated concept, okay? This medicine can find cells that are specific to cancer, all right? And along with this thing that acts like a virus is a molecule that attaches to that tumor cell, okay? It's a targeted therapy with multiple potential sites of cancer within the body, the most pertinent of which today is choroidal melanoma. And this um, molecule, all right, which we're gonna call Belsar, previously always called AU011, all right, is an investigational novel therapy which attaches itself, when you inject it into the eye, attaches itself to melanoma cells. All right, and if you activate it with a certain wavelength of light, that can have two effects on those tumor cells. One is it causes it literally to just blow up, okay? Or it attracts your immune system, your own immune system to that cell. Danae, you may want to turn off your microphone. Yeah, turn your microphone. Yeah. Um, attracts your own immune system to that cell and causes it to kill it, all right? The, what this allows us to do, okay, we make the assumption that every lesion is like a little bit benign. Every lesion that's malignant is a little bit benign and a little bit malignant, right? This has the potential to attach itself 
just to the malignant cells within that lesion, okay, then you light it up, it blows those cells up, it gets a scar, and you've treated the primary tumor, all right? That's really the thought behind how this works. The medication is either delivered by an intravitreal injection, which a lot of you are familiar with, okay, or by injecting into a space called the suprachoroidal space, which is between uh, the eye wall and the choroid, all right? The choroid is where these melanomas occur, all right? And then there's a special wavelength of light that we use to excite this medication, and then it goes on to killing the tumor and sparing you the potential side effects of radiation. And um, several of us who have, you've seen today have been part of the uh, investigator group that are looking and evaluating this tumor. I'm one of those people. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the data. So what we should say uh, initially is that this was the kind of trial that you could go into and know exactly what you were getting. All right? Not a lot of trials are like that. A lot of trials are, are masked, where you don't know what you're getting, the investigator doesn't know what you're getting. This one, you knew exactly what you were getting. All right? You had to make the conscious choice that you were going to get this experimental therapy. All right? And initially, the, the treatment was just for small melanomas that we decided were just melanomas by looking at them. All right? You came in, you saw an ocular oncologist who said, this is a melanoma. And um, by, uh, and then you we treated it. Okay. As time went on, that the people that were included were really just people who demonstrated significant growth measured by um, photographs or by ultrasound. Okay. These were um, the clinical endpoints. Right. We watched the tumor size grow or not grow. All right. As measured by ultrasound or and we were also particularly interested in visual acuity with the hypothesis that if we could um, treat these tumors with this novel agent, we would save patients uh, some vision loss. What we found was that you could prevent tumor growth, okay, by using this medication that you excited with a laser, all right, the highest effect, meaning the least tumor growth, Okay, what we were looking for is no growth or minimal growth. The highest effect was seen the more times you used the medication. Okay, so you injected more, you lasered it more, you injected some more again, you lasered it more again. Okay, and if you did that enough times, then you would get a significant response. Okay, this is an example of a patient who was in the study. All right, you can see on the left side of the screen. Um, a lesion that was initially described as indeterminate, watched it over the course of treatment, watched it three months later at least, and they saw that there was significant growth. And this is exactly the kind of person who has done very, very well with this uh, investigational product. You watch them over the course um, of their treatment. They didn't keep all of their vision, right? So their baseline was 69 letters. Um, they kept 56 of them, all right? which is actually a pretty good uh, amount of vision. Um, most patients, the vision was preserved, okay? The most interesting thing is that even when the 
tumor was near the optic nerve or near the very center of the macula, the fovea, they had um, minimal vision loss. And these are exactly the kind of people that we worry about with vision loss for radiation retinopathy. Commonly, patients would develop some inflammation in the eye, okay? The lesion, the, the medication seems to draw the immune system in, all right? So getting inflammation inside the eye was a common thing. After you got over that, um, you started getting a lot of vision back. So the next way that, uh, so that was, the, that was the initial set of trials, okay? More recently, the company has been focusing on um, getting medication into the eye through the suprachoroidal space, okay? And what this is, is it's, it's like a teeny tiny sliver of a space. We call it a potential space, all right? Because it's, it's between two tissue layers that you can open up if you need to. Uh, and we're gonna show you a video of that. What this potentially does is increases the amount of medication that you can get into the eye and reduce inflammation. So this, I don't know if we can play the video, but if we can, yes we can, is how the medication works. So there is audio along with this video, I don't know if, anyway, you depress the, um, into the eye, this teeny tiny needle will go into the suprachoroidal space, all right? You inject the medication, it increases the size of the suprachoroidal space by injecting medication into there, and then that sort of goes around the, around the eye, and a lot of it then gets into the tumor. As time has gone on, um, more people have been enrolled into the trial. And so, as, so what we started with was a very small amount of medication, exciting it with one laser, right? As time has gone on, we found that more medication can be given safely, excited more times. Right now, um, patients are getting the highest dose of medication that we believe is gonna be necessary and exciting it three times. And so, um, the therapeutic regimen is completed in three treatment cycles. So you um, get uh, some medication, wait a little while for it to go around in the eye, use a laser, then wait 30 minutes, and then laser it again. And then one cycle of treatment consists of three weekly treatments of this medication and laser. The tumors that we're focusing on, again, we're not biopsying these particular tumors, okay? So the patient knows that we're watching these, looking for actual documented growth. These are the patients that we're looking for to confirm that they're melanoma, they're, so that there can be no question that what is happening is we're treating melanomas. In those patients, what we're finding is that the current therapeutic regimen, getting three cycles of treatment, um, has demonstrated really consistent and significant tumor stoppage, meaning it's not growing. Again, um, we've seen that there's been a significant preservation of vision, even when there's at the highest dose regimen. Um, and again, the uh, main 
risks of the of the treatment have been inflammation. And once you got over that um, inflammation, with sometimes with steroid therapy, sometimes for observation, uh, that's when vision really started coming back, and you were doing well. Um, the medication is going to have other potential uses in ocular oncology. So not just uh, choroidal melanoma. It also appears that uh, if you have a choroidal metastasis from um, a tumor like a primary breast, meta or breast cancer or a primary lung cancer, this will also be an effective therapy as well. Um, and we can see that we can um, inhibit tumor growth and prolong survival, especially when it's given along with other therapies. Um, so the early work, the preclinical work, along with our current um, uh, stages of our trial are demonstrating that um, this is a potential treatment uh, for ocular cancers, especially ones uh, that start in the choroid, choroidal melanoma, and those that metastasize to the choroid. Um, they can be done along with uh, other, other therapies, uh, other immune therapies or chemotherapy um, for other cancers as well. Um, right now, uh, the current pipeline is for use primarily in choroidal melanoma, but we think that there's a potential for other tumors as well. And one of the current trials is for use of the medication in the bladder, actually. Happy to take questions. Yes, I'm back up. All right. Okay. So my question, when you were talking about the, the procedure, the staging of, okay, we administer the AU, AU011 drug, and then we laser, like, four to six hours, and then we laser, um, and then wait, and then laser again, what specific type of laser are you using? Is that the endo laser you discussed towards the last uh, presentation? No. Or a different it's one? A, it's a laser much more similar to what you would see uh, in somebody's office. Okay. But it's at a slightly... So lasers are made... Um, with specific wavelengths, okay, of light. This um, specific laser has a very specific wavelength of light that we use for this particular purpose. We don't use it for other purposes in, uh, in ophthalmology right now. Okay, so then my other question is, you mentioned it's being used to explore other cancers, and that's wonderful. My question is, is there room within this study or future studies that you can see or foresee uh, to research this drug you know, in, in researching its, its treatment of larger choroidal melanomas or, you know, medium-sized, large, or even other types of uveal melanoma, choroidal, um, ciliary body, conjunctival? The, I think um, your question is theoretical. Um, and what I would say is right now, the primary indications are, to, the primary purpose of the medication is to demonstrate that it works in treating smaller indeterminate size lesions. Um, and then... Uh, see what happens. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so as we kind of shift gears to the next slides, just keep in mind if you guys do have questions, please write them down on the pages. Um, keep in mind, again, these physicians are here, but they cannot offer specific medical advice. We know it's so tempting to want to offer all of, all of our specifics, right, because we are all very unique. Um, but just keep that in mind that if, if we don't answer your question, it's not because we don't want to, it's just because they cannot. Um, so thank you again for being here, and we're going to move on to our next presentation with Dr. Walter, and he's presenting for Castle Biosciences, who is our presenting sponsor.
All right, well, take it away. I think this is the last talk of the day. So we're going to talk about genetic testing in ocular melanoma, or more specifically, uveal melanoma. I don't have a disclosure slide, but I am a uh, participant in the COOG2 trial, which is sponsored by Castle Biosciences, and I have served uh, in an advisory board capacity for them, but they had no role in the construction of these slides, so these are my own thoughts. So. My other title for the talk is Decoding the Ocular Melanoma Alphabet Soup. So there's a lot of uh, abbreviations on here, some of which may be familiar to uh, many in this room, but uh, there's probably, you know, I would guess that most people in this room can't um, explain what each of these uh, acronyms means. So hopefully by the end of today's talk, we'll all be a little bit more familiar with um, each of these uh, alphabet soup uh, particles. So the evolution of genetic testing, um, uh, you know, follows our uh, understanding of the genetic basis of uveal melanoma, which has really evolved over time, and it's been driven by some great clinician scientists, two of whom are uh, listed on this slide, um, Dr. Bertil D'Amato, who in the 1990s kind of pioneered our understanding of chromosomal changes in, um, uh, in uveal melanoma. And then in the 2000s to the present day, uh, Bill Harbour, who's one of my mentors, um, you know, has really kind of taken the field another great leap forward in helping us understand a gene expression profiling and the mutational changes that uh, are occurring in these tumors. So if we think about uh, levels of genetic testing, we can also think about the levels of the human genome. So there are 46 chromosomes uh, in the human genome. They're all... Um, uh, well, uh, uh, 20, uh, 22 of them uh, are pairs, and then you have an X and an X, or an X and a Y, so that gives you a total of 46. Um, and on those 46 chromosomes, there are approximately 22,000 genes, and from those 22,000 genes, we produce approximately 140,000 um, RNA transcripts, and the RNA transcripts are the actual messages that the genes uh, send out that lead to the uh, production of proteins that actually affect the cellular biology. So if we uh, think about these different levels of the genome, we can think about levels of genetic testing at each of these uh, genomic levels. So MLPA looks at the chromosomal level, NGS, or next generation sequencing, looks at the gene level, and GEP, or gene expression profiling, looks at the RNA level. Um, so these are all different levels of the human genome that we're looking at. And as we have um, kind of gone from this higher order of the chromosomes down to uh, gene expression profiling, you can see that we're uh, kind of, we're, you know, with, with the chromosomal analysis, we're looking at a larger percentage of the, the human genome, 17%, or eight of the chromosomes, but we're looking with sort of, you know, a, a, a foggy telescope, right? We can see a little bit of what's going on, but, you know, at the chromosomal level, but we can't really see what's going on at the individual genetic level. Whereas as we hone in on these um, uh, genetic signatures and RNA signatures, we're really being much more targeted and specific in the types of information that we're extracting from the tumor DNA. Um, so we're really only looking at um, uh, less than 1% um, of the genome when we're analyzing it with next-generation sequencing or gene expression profiling. 
So the evolution of genetic testing has been uh, pioneered by uh, you know, two companies uh, in particular, Castle Biosciences, uh, introduced their gene expression profiling test uh, and made it commercially available um, in 2009, and this followed on the footsteps of Bill Harbour's work in the lab. Uh, Impact Genetics introduced their um, multiplex ligation, um, I can't even pronounce, MLPA NGS testing in uh, 2014. Um, and then uh, Castle Biosciences expanded their testing uh, offerings in 2016 and 2018 to add PREM and next generation sequencing to their uveal melanoma diagnostic package. So we're gonna now talk a little bit more about uh, these uh, different aspects of genetic testing. So MLPA stands for Multiplex Ligation Dependent Probe Amplification, and this is a, a technology that's used to detect chromosomal changes. We're specifically looking at um, chromosomes one, three, six, and eight, and when it says disomy one, disomy three, disomy six, disomy eight, that's normal. That means you have two copies of chromosome one, two copies of chromosome three, two copies of chromosome six, and two copies of chromosome eight. That's how your, your eye was born. The melanocyte has the normal chromosomal profile. Now, if you have an 8Q gain, that's a change in the structure of the chromosomes um, that's associated with an intermediate risk of metastasis. But the big risk factor with chromosomal testing is something called monosomy 3, um, and then there's a variation on that called isodisomy 3. And both of these are associated with a high risk of uh, metastasis. Um, patients that have monosomy 3 can go on to develop additional changes, such as loss of uh, the uh, 1P portion of chromosome 1, which can increase their risk, or they can gain 6P, which leads to a slight reduction in their risk of metastasis. So this is kind of the information that is collected with the um, uh, uh, testing um, uh, when we're looking at chromosomes. So now let's go down to the gene level or next generation sequencing. It's just a targeted um, sequencing looking at DNA mutations in a specific subset of genes. And I've listed here seven genes that are included on Castle's uh, NGS panel for uveal melanoma. And we can divide these genes into two categories. There's the initiator mutations. And for the sake of simplicity, I'm gonna leave out um, uh, two of those and just focus on the more common GNAQ and GNA11 mutations. So most of our um, uh, tumors, whether they're a benign nevus or a choroidal melanoma, will have an initiator mutation in GNAQ or GNA11. And this is sort of the first step that the, that the cell takes on the pathway to becoming a um, choroidal melanoma. But it's not a melanoma yet, okay? It needs an additional driver mutation, at least this is our current level of understanding, in one of three genes, BAP1, SF3B1, or EIF1AX, to go from a nevus into a melanoma. So there's two mutations that make it a melanoma, and one of those mutations is common to a nevus, and one of those mutations is unique to it being a melanoma. So um, here's just a schematic. We start out with a GNAQ or GNA11 mutation that gives you a nevus, and then on top of that, you get uh, an additional mutation in EIF1AX, SF3B1, or BAP1, which turns it into a melanoma. And it's pretty rare that you have 
multiple mutations. Like a, it, it'd be unusual to have a BAP1 mutation and an EIF1AX mutation. You, generally speaking, only have one of these additional driver mutations in your tumor. All right, now let's talk about gene expression profiling. So this is kind of a more complicated concept. Gene expression profiling uses RNA, which are those transcripts that are being produced from the genes in the genome to measure the activity of many genes at once. So we can look at the whole genome or transcriptome, which is 140,000 RNA transcripts, and we get this, you know, kind of messy plot here of, you know, some genes are upregulated, some genes are downregulated in individual cells. And this would vary depending on whether you're looking at an eye um, uh, cell, um, you know, or a nerve cell or a pancreas cell. You know, every cell has a different gene expression profile. And uh, tumors uh, have a different gene expression profile than the originator cell. So the melanocyte has. Uh, one gene expression profile, and then as the melanocyte turns into a bad-acting melanoma, it acquires a different gene expression profile. So the way this was figured out was using machine learning, because we're talking about an enormous data set of hundreds of thousands of um, data points for each individual tumor, and basically, um, you know, they, they created this large data set of information from a well-annotated data set of tumors, and we knew that some of those tumors metastasized and some of those tumors didn't metastasize, and we asked the, the AI, the machine learning algorithm, to tell us what was different about the tumors that metastasized versus the tumors that didn't metastasize. And that's how we came up with gene expression profiling, which uses only 15 different genes, and actually three of the genes are what we call control genes. So they're expressed at the same level, whether the cell is cancerous or normal, or a pancreas cell, or a you know, eye cell, or a um, you know, liver cell. So those are the control genes. Then we have 12 discriminant genes, which are expressed at either higher or lower levels in the cancer cells uh, that were included in this analysis. And what we asked the um, you know, machine learning algorithm to do was to kind of um, divide those, um, uh, those uh, tumors up into the ones that metastasized and the ones that didn't metastasize and figure out what was different about their gene expression profile. So you can see here how uh, the algorithm kind of found the uh, differences between the class one tumors and the class two tumors in the gene expression profile. Um, so what does this mean? If you have a class one tumor, generally speaking, you have a much lower risk of metastasis, and if you have a class two gene expression profile, you have a higher risk of metastasis. And just to put some you know, rough numbers on this, the class two uh, tumors are associated with the highest risk of metastasis, and again, this is old data based on larger tumors than um, you know, a lot of us uh, had when we were treated. Um, but 70% uh, five-year risk of metastasis in the class two tumors, approximately a 30% risk of metastasis in the 1B tumors, and a less than 5% risk in the class 1A tumors. So again, how does this um, uh, gene expression profile evolve as the tumor evolves? We start off with an, a normal melanocyte or a choroidal nevus, which has a class 1A gene expression profile, which is the normal cellular program that a melanocyte should be, um, you know, operating under. And that can evolve into a melanoma, which may maintain a class 1A gene expression profile, 
or evolve into a more deranged or abnormal gene expression profile, such as class 1B, which is pretty similar to class 1A, but a little bit you know, funky, or a class 2 gene expression profile, which is completely funky. You know, all the genes are you know, going in different directions than they are. The, the gene expression is sort of going up when it should be down and uh, down when it should be up. So um, that's how we are really defining this line in the sand between class 1 and class 2. Um, so generally speaking, gene expression profiling and NGS provide complementary information about metastatic risk. So if you have a low-risk gene expression profile like class 1A, you're very likely to have a low-risk mutation on your NGS, such as EIF1AX, again with the medium-risk tumors, uh, class 1B, often associated with SF3B1 mutations, and the high-risk or class 2 gene expression profile is usually associated with a BAP1 mutation. Um, so again, this is just showing us that evolutionary landscape where we're going from the nevus to either the low-grade class 1A melanoma with an EIF1AX mutation or a medium-grade 1B melanoma with the SF3B1 mutation or the high-grade class 2 melanoma with the BAP1 mutation. In cases where there's a discrepancy between the gene expression profile and the NGS, whereas some of um, you in the audience may have had both gene expression profiling and chromosomal profiling, I would say the, the best thing is to uh, assume the worst case scenario, which is that the highest, higher risk feature uh, overrides. So this patient who had a, a class 1A gene expression profile, but um, I identified a BAP1 mutation, uh, I would recommend uh, that she have high-intensity metastatic surveillance and definitive treatment, you know, with plaque uh, brachytherapy or nucleation for this tumor. So what is PRAME? PRAME is sort of um, uh, a new uh, concept. It stands for preferentially expressed antigen in melanoma. It's, um, it was originally identified in cutaneous melanoma. It's what's called a cancer testis antigen. So it is um, something that's not normally expressed in the eye or really in any tissues except for cancer cells and for some reason in the testis. So there are a number of um, cancer genes that kind of fall, or cancer um, uh, antigens that fall into this category. Um, it's not a genetic mutation, so this is um, you know, important to recognize. This is sort of a, a gene expression profile unto itself. It's, uh, it's a protein that when it's upregulated affects the transcription of many other proteins. So it changes the cellular program um, when PRAME is expressed in the cell. It is measured by gene expression profiling, but it was not included on that original 15-gene panel that um, uh, uh, determines whether you're class 1 or class 2. So the PRAME expression provides independent information from what we get from the gene expression profile. It's not you know, redundant with that information. Um, the bad news about PRAME is that it has been associated with a poor prognosis in multiple cancer types. So here are some survival can, uh, curves looking at renal cancer and head and neck cancer. Um, we are currently doing a uh, large multicenter prospective study called the COOG-2 in which we're evaluating uh, the role of PRAME in uh, prognosis in uveal melanoma. Um, but I can tell you from looking at the preliminary data, which isn't published yet, that there is a pretty consistent signal across the board that PRAME increases the risk of metastasis 
at all levels of gene expression profile. So if you have a class 1A tumor that's prime positive, you have an increased risk relative to a class 1A tumor that's prime negative. Similarly with class 1B prime positive and class 2 prime positive, there's an incremental risk on top of the underlying risk um, that comes from the gene expression profile. So the good news about PRAME is that it, uh, it seems to increase the recognition of cancer cells by cytolytic T cells, which are the cells that actually kill cancer cells when your immune system recognizes the cancer. And uveal melanoma is, is um, notoriously difficult to treat with immunotherapy, but it seems that PRAME-positive tumors may actually be more responsive to immunotherapy than PRAME-negative tumors. So, there is, you know, maybe a silver lining that prime expression may um, increase your responsiveness to immunotherapy, and maybe we'll have prime directed immunotherapies in the future that help us um, more directly target a metastatic melanoma that is prime positive. So again, thank you for your attention, and uh, I don't know if we have other presentations or we can go to uh, questions from the audience. I think, I think we're good to go to questions from the audience. Yeah, I actually do have a good number of questions, so uh, I'm going to hang out here if that's okay with you guys. Makes it easier. I can see you because my one eye can see you all. It's great. So thank you guys, everyone who's brought in questions. Um, you guys are doing a really good job with bringing these questions and getting specific. Um, if, if I do have more questions, uh, we probably have maybe five to ten minutes so we can cover some questions. Um, so this is kind of a true or false question. Uh, it says, currently, there's no way to find the genetic mutations, really, like all of them, BAP1, PRAIM, any of these mutations you discussed. Um, there's no way to find them from other blood tests, like, like a direct body blood test to find them ahead of time before they metastasize. Is that true or false? False, but okay. we're not there yet. Okay. So, uh, so the answer is we're working on it, okay, but, uh, but we're not there yet, and so... We are making do with what we have, which is the which is the tissue from the tumor. Okay, so that was my other question here: is that is the prime evaluation that we're discussing right here, right now, only for the eye tumor primary biopsy, or is it also evaluated at the time of liver metastasis? Or do you guys not know that? I just am curious. Uh, that's a great question. I'm not aware of um, commercially available prime testing for metastatic lesions. Okay, so this is very specific to just the ocular. Obviously, you guys are. Ophthalmologist. Right, but the the um, those patients with metastatic disease in this in this room are probably very aware of um, uh, the very regular use of prime testing on liver tissue. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, at the time of liver biopsy, it's very common to do prime testing on that tissue. Sometimes it actually differs from from the primary tumor. The reason that may be is because the um, metastatic liver tissue seems to protect itself pretty well from, uh, from prime testing once it's already spread. So, so the answer is it's available in both. What we're talking about right now is only eye stuff. Okay, perfect. Um, so then this one says, can you explain the clinical um, value? Let's see. Actually, I'm going to read this again, and I'm going to come back and decide if I'm going to read it out loud. So hold on. Um, are there any current studies that are geared specifically toward the uh, the one the class one A, um, like clinical trials that are? I think you guys talked about the R, obviously the R treatment as an option, but I, I think this question is maybe talking more about studies for the metastatic spread, and and that one you guys let me know if we need to defer that to Dr. Moser and Dr. McKean. I think you know the 
they want to do these trials. It's a rare disease. There's not a lot of patients. So most of the trials that I'm aware of have been focusing on the high-risk patients that we know are statistically more likely to develop metastatic disease. And in those, you need fewer patients to determine whether or not your intervention is going to work. Mm -hmm. So I think the answer is no to that 1A question. As far as I, as far as I know, that's correct. If you happen to be a 1A patient who's developed um, a metastasis, um, there are clinical trials that are probably available to you just by the fact that you have a metastasis, not because your okay, tumor that, was Okay, that's private. a good clarifying question. Not, not because your tumor was 1A. Uh, at the, the original tumor was 1A. Okay. Uh, let's see. So are there, are there any studies being done for those who have not been diagnosed yet? So somebody who just has a lot of flashes of light but doesn't have a tumor that's been specifically found? Like, is there any correlation between, oh, you have like lots of flashes, that means you're going to develop a tumor soon? This is a theoretical question, I know. Yeah, so flashes and floaters are, are common symptoms from a multitude of retinal conditions, um, but... Uh, Choroidal melanoma is an extraordinarily rare cause of uh, flashes and floaters in the grand scheme of things. So if you are having flashes and floaters, you should be evaluated by an ophthalmologist or preferably a retina specialist, but um, you probably are not at risk of uh, uveal melanoma on the basis of that symptom alone. Okay, I think that covers that. This is a little bit of a backtrack to the previous session, I think. Um, I think this was more kind of from Dr. Hovland's session and what he talked about, but it just says, do you use a slotted plaque for tumors touching the optic nerve? And what is the recurrence rate of primary OM when slotted plaque is used? So basically that gap, you know, where some part of the tumor maybe is not treated directly. I think the shields have shown that uh, deeply notched plaques is pretty effective for uh, tumors involving the optic nerve. Oh, I do use those. Um, but I would put my data at the anecdotal level, uh, meaning it's not real science or statistics. Uh, you know, I would say a lot of it, the plaque, you know, you read these studies, well, there's this kind of local recurrence with this treatment, protons, for example, or with the plaques. But uh, honestly, I think ultrasound guidance uh, for a while wasn't, not everyone used it. And I think without that, you're gonna have 20% failure rates we've seen published. So I don't I use it. That, huh? I don't use ultrasound guidance. What? Yeah. No, I think the I think there is a there's a skill level to whoever's doing the procedure, and it takes a lot of practice. And uh, so I, I think we try and extrapolate from studies, but the reality comes down to the actual practitioner, I suppose, uh, and the skill at which the, these techniques are applied. But I think a slotted plaque has generally is a reasonable approach, and okay. has a, a reasonable chance of success. All right. Well, I feel like we are down to the end of what we can accept for questions just for time to be respectful of everybody's time here. But thank you again to you guys. Do you have anything you want to cover to wrap up this presentation before we go into the end of the day? Uh, no. I mean, if there are no further questions, we, we do have some comments to make yes. uh, to say goodbye. But um, Yes, we're going to cover those in just a sec if you can give us, give us just a minute. We have a script. It's fun. All right. So... Um, Okay, can we pull up our slides then from the ACIS presentation? Um, we're back to the Tricella slide. Um, I do need to just take a moment because we haven't been able to credit them yet to thank another of our partner sponsors, Tricellus Life Sciences. And they are an interventional in immunotherapy company on a mission to improve the lives of patients 
living with liver and pancreatic cancers by dramatically transforming the way these diseases are treated. So we're grateful to them for their support. Next slide. Um, our next seminar, if you have not already heard, if you haven't heard it kind of floating around, we are planning to head to Seattle next year. And we're going to be there with the uh, Dr. Stacy and the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance in the fall of 2023. Next slide. Thank you again to our presenting castle, um, present, presenting sponsor, Castle Biosciences. If you guys haven't met Kat yet, she's over here in the back. Can you wave, Kat? She's over here. We're so grateful to Castle. This literally would not have happened without them. Um, so we are incredibly grateful for their support and for them being here as well. Castle, are, they're, they're a huge wealth of resources, and they're very open to talking with patients and giving you guys as much support as you need. So make sure to chat with her. Make sure you have a good way to um, connect. And just again, thank you, Tennessee Retina, Dr. Reichstein, for all of the things that you guys have done to help us get ready to be here, all of the support you've given us today. Um, so Dr. Reichstein, um, I think, let's see, I'm scrolling down. This is your turn. And if you need the script, let me know. Uh, I have a script with me. <laughs> all right, you're good. Um, so thank yous uh, come actually on multiple levels. Um, obviously, uh, thank you to the ACIS board, Melody, Lauren, Suzanne, Marlene, Jack, Danae, Julie, and Hannah. Uh, thanks go out to our production team, uh, the WMV Productions, in particular Nick, Philip, and Samantha. Uh, our, our production team today, that's Paige and Maddie. Uh, a lot of thanks goes to the team at Tennessee Retina. Um, Anderson Brock, Dina, Joanna, Holly, uh, Andrea, um, for not just uh, being here and part of the oncology team, but also taking care of Monica, my daughter, today. Um, to our photographer, uh, Jern Hamestra. Um, and uh, an unbelievable amount of thanks um, goes to um, Castle, Aura, Immunocore, Delcath, Trisolus, Foghorn, and Replimune um, for allowing us um, to be here. I would love to give um, my heartfelt thanks to Dr. Scott Walter and Dr. Peter Hovland, um, who have um, been here um, as my uh, compatriots in putting a lot of these talks together. Thank you very, very much. Sincere thank you um, to uh, Dr. Meredith McKean and Dr. Justin Moser uh, for their time and outstanding talks this morning. Uh, very sincere thanks to Dr. Terry Watson uh, for sharing his experience over on track two, uh, to uh, Dr. John Pino for talking about low vision. Who else am I forgetting? Um, Joanna Morales. Yes. Triage cancer and Ann Osborne. And Ann Osborne for um, for her amazing story and for providing us all with our um, fantastic books. And Dr. Ashar for um, all of uh, that work yesterday. And really, thank you so much for spending your time uh, with us today. Um, I think you can see that um, we gain as much inspiration out of treating you as I hope you get inspiration out of being treated. This is really our life's work, and the fact that we get to um, share it in a positive way and come together means a whole lot for us as doctors. So thank you so much. We hope you enjoy uh, the dinner tonight and for being here.
Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.